Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. this Wednesday, the 11th of November. I think we have two weeks, two weeks before the Wednesday of Thanksgiving. Does that sound right, Paul? Does that sound like it's two weeks away? Doesn't yeah, it? 14 two days weeks and a day 10, away. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, so yeah, but, but two weeks from like the day you have to like have your grocery shopping done. So I just thought that I would let you know that the average cost of a cart of groceries in the United States of America um, has... Uh, has like nearly doubled for some people just in the last few months. Um, that's kind of crazy. Um, and it apparently it goes up like on average 10 to 12% year over year anyway, um, which is interesting. But today, uh, apparently back in March, the typical shopping cart of groceries cost between $90 and $200. So that depends on what you put in it, how much you put in it, you know, how exclusive your products are, how much protein you're putting in there, blah, 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 all of that, right? Um, and that has now risen from like the low end of 90 to um, 125 and the high end from 200 to 400. So apparently if you're putting more expensive things in your cart to begin with or more of them, obviously, I don't know, it's like an accelerator. It's kind of crazy. So why say all that? Because when I say grocery cart, no, no. Let's try this one. When I say shopping cart, if I say grocery cart, you know what I'm talking about. If I say shopping cart, like let's do a little word association here for just a minute. Shopping cart. Does your understanding of that question change based on the times in which we live? Like when I say shopping cart, does your mind go first to the actual like grocery store, grocery store shopping cart, like an actual shopping cart? the one that you can, like, ride through the parking lot? Um, Or when I say shopping cart, does your mind first go to, like, a digital place, an app, an online site like Amazon? Like, what's in your shopping cart? So that's my lead-in to this announcement. Drum roll. There should be a drum roll. This is actually a drum roll moment. I I, I got that. I'm so sorry. Here you go. version you version passed the half a billion mark in terms of installs of its Bible reading app so that happened today so a new store opened in July of 2008 a new store unlike any store that we had ever seen before it was a it is now a store that more people shop in around the world every single day than any other store on the planet ever. And it's not a store in the way that we've all thought about a store before. So I'm talking about the App Store. And the App Store, which opened in July of 2008, features um, free and for pay downloadable apps. Well, one of the first 200 
free apps that was ever available in the App Store is a Bible reading app called YouVersion. And so I'm giving a shout out today to YouVersion because this morning the app passed a threshold of 500 million downloads. Half a billion with a B is a lot of app downloads. So shout out to YouVersion today for a half a billion installs of their Bible reading app, which leads me to ask you, where in the Word are you today? Where in the Word have you been? Where in the Word are you going? Get into the Word of God and let the Word of God get into you before you get out there into the world that God so loves. Is Bible reading a part of your morning routine? If not, there's literally an app for that. We're going to talk about our morning routine. We're going to talk about the things that we do every day, every morning on purpose and out of habitual routine. With John Brandon, he joins me next. We're going to talk about our routines and how they matter and how we define them on purpose and for a purpose. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. John Brandon joins me now. He's a Forbes columnist. He is also the author of The 7-Minute Productivity Solution. I invite you to check it out at 7minutesolution.com. John, good morning. Hey, good morning to you. All right. So why do routines matter? Routines, those things that might feel like ruts. Why do routines matter? Yeah, and I've been uh, talking about the book a lot lately, and I have this phrase that I've been using with people. And the phrase is basically, uh, we don't create good habits. Good habits create us. Mm. Uh, I'm sure somebody else said something similar to that at one point, but that's the little phrase I've been using. What it means is that, you know, routine is something, you know, brushing your teeth, driving the car, they're all routines that lead to something somewhere. And when we have a good routine, it leads us to a good habit. And then we become someone who is habitual about good things. That's really what I write about in the book. Uh, I think I'd love to talk to you about a morning routine because that is the most important one of the day by far. Yeah. So before we, um, before we get to the morning routine, um, I, need a, I need you to define something for me because I don't know what it means if my computer were to brick what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that that sounds pretty terrible. Uh, and why would a person means... worry? Why would a person worry that their laptop might have bricked? Yeah, it's literally like a brick. You can use it as a door stopper. You can maybe put it to prop up something in your house. It's useless. It doesn't work anymore, and it's probably never going to be saved, even by a computer expert. So, yeah, brick means that it is just toast. It's done. And. And why were you at one point in time worried that your laptop might have bricked? Ah, you, you, read, you read the opening chapter of the book. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, if a laptop is left out in the cold for too long, they, laptops don't like cold very much. So uh, hot tip for people, if you have a laptop in your car and winter is coming, it might brick because the internal components just don't like being really cold. 
All right. We're now going to talk about um, why our morning routine matters so much and what about our morning routine matters so much. But I want to share with you um, Phyllis on the text line who has offered up her quote of the day related to habits. She says, habits at first are cobwebs and later cables. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of good quotes about habits out there for sure. You know why that is, though, Carmen? Uh, we're we're living in this world of distraction. When we wake up in the morning, our brain is actually percolating. It's saying, "Hey, what am I going to focus on today?" Uh, it's literally percolating like a coffee maker used to do. And and there's chemicals saying in the salience network of your brain. There's also something called the reticular activating system. They're all triggering uh, focus. And that's such an amazing thing because it's God-given. It helps us figure out what's important, how to be intentional. It can also work against us. If you've ever used social media or checked your email, you know that you can go down a rabbit trail and your focus becomes a detriment. So what I talk about in the book is have a morning routine. I say seven minutes grab a journal. I actually recommend a kitchen timer because it's very non-techy. And just spend a few minutes thinking about your day, thinking about your habits. Uh, I have something in the book called hope moments, which means that they're the moments of the day that you're looking forward to the most. You circle them. I have a little breathing exercise. It's very simple. It just teaches you to be intentional with your time. And then as the day goes on, you start thinking, you know what, I wrote that down. That was a hope moment. That was something I wanted to focus on. And it's really important. Uh, You mentioned earlier about the the YouVersion Bible app. You know, I actually say, have your devotions first, of course. Spend time in the Word first. That's when you have the best hope moments. But when you're thinking about work and planning for the day, grab a journal and do that. Because especially as Christians, we can get derailed by things that don't matter very much. Yeah, so you're going to grab your journal and you're going to jot things down, not like a list of things to accomplish during the day, but really to get them sort of out of your mind and onto paper so that you can turn your attention intentionally to the thing that you're prioritizing, the thing that's first. Um, We're going to continue to talk about morning routine and the importance of defining what is really meaningful, um, prioritizing that which is of actual importance with John Brandon next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with John Brandon. He is, among other things, the author of The Seven-Minute Productivity Solution. Um, it's actually uh, available for pre-order at 40% off today, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, so check it out at 7minutesolution.com. John, let's talk about, uh, continue talking about our morning routine. Um, one of the things that you talk about early on is the importance of defining, like, what is really important. Or, I mean, that, I'm, that's redundant. The importance of defining what is really meaningful, like prioritizing. So how how do we prioritize and what do we prioritize? Yeah, and so I'm not a big fan of long task lists. And this is a shout out to my son-in-law. He's a pastor in Austria. And he told me that sometimes in the morning, he'll have his routine and he'll jot down things in a journal and he'll write down one thing for the day. You know, as Christians, maybe it's share Christ with my neighbor. And that's the only thing that you maybe need to accomplish for the entire day. And that's okay. I'm giving people permission 
don't make a task list of 10, 15 items. It doesn't work anyway. Uh, this is a really interesting topic. So back a few hundred years ago, the word priorities, plural, did not exist. Only the word mm. priority. And there's a reason for that. Because back a hundred year, few hundred years ago, they didn't have phones, they didn't have laptops, they didn't have all these distractions, and they could actually wake up in the morning and say, today I'm just going to write this letter, or today I'm just going to go to this place and buy these things. I, I'm an advocate of just li living a more simple life, also of making clear, concise decisions. Uh, you mentioned uh, reading the Bible earlier, and I'm reading through Acts right now and journaling through Acts. And I found a verse just yesterday morning, and it's Acts 19.21, and it talks about how, uh, and by the way, this is, this is a short little verse that I just happened to find because I was journaling through the Bible. And it says, after all this happened, Paul decided boldly to go to Jerusalem. And I love that because it's just this short little statement, but it reveals at some point Paul was like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to try to do 50 things or 20 things. Today I'm just going to go to Jerusalem. And I wish we could live more intentionally like that. And the morning routine really helps. It just says, jot down a few things. Uh, another part of the morning routine is you write down what's stressing you out and you end up crossing them off in the routine and you say, those things aren't gonna rule my day. I'm gonna cross them off. Um, there's something about the brain science of writing something down, it logs it into our long-term memory. And when we cross something out, we say, okay, this is something that I'm worried about. It's maybe a real thing. We're all living in a pandemic still, but I'm just not gonna focus on it. I'm gonna focus on the important things and the things that are positive and enriching to others. So as you share that, I'm, I'm taken back to this portion of a conversation that we had with Linda Mental earlier this week. Um, today's Wednesday, so it must have just been Monday. We talked with, with her about anger and, um, and like how we, how we deal with that and how we process through that. She actually used a very similar um, uh, process, asking someone to write down um, all of the things that, you know, sort of like cause them to feel like a victim mm -hmm. and and then right. actually go through the process of physically crossing those out as as the person was recognizing look I can't control that person or what has happened in the past or but I can control me right now and how I either continue to hold on to that um, I mean I am the one carrying that forward into the present I feel like part of your making the list of stressors is a lot like that. Like I, I can give those things over to God um, and I can then ask him to give me the peace that passes all understanding to replace that thing that's causing me stress right now because I can't control it anyway. Yeah, there's a, I have a book recommendation for you too. It's called The One Thing. And of course, that book is pretty famous. It's a productivity book. And in that book, he talks about how uh, I think it's 33% more likely to remember something if we write it down. This mm -hmm. is also fascinating to me. If you tell somebody that you wrote something down, the, the odds of you remembering it and retaining it go up even more. I think it's like 40 or 50%. It's funny that so I'm not John, quite remembering them. Maybe I didn't write them down <laughs> enough at the so time. So supposedly... But, if people hear something on the radio, they're 88% more likely to remember it. 
And then yeah. let me just say, if when you hear something on the radio, you write it down in that fancy faith radio journal that we sent you because you were a new donor during share or something. And then you shared it with someone else. You said to them, hey, I wrote this down. I wrote this thing down that I heard on faith radio. I, I feel like there's like almost a guarantee you're going to remember it. Yeah. And uh, one other quick thing about memories and, and recording things and trying to lodge them into a long-term memory. This was a fascinating discovery when I was writing the book and credit to uh, the, the brain scientists that I, I researched and interviewed. But memories, when you're remembering something, you're not actually remembering the original event. You're mm. remembering memory. And that's just so fascinating to me because let's say something happened to you when you were 10 and you remembered it when you were 20 and 25 and 30. You're remembering when you remembered it when you were 30. And so the reason why that's so important to know for a morning routine is what are you remembering? Are you remembering the good things? Are you recording the good things? You're, you're stirring the pot. You're saying, okay, I'm going to decide what I want to remember in the future. Um, and, of course, we all know the way to live that's not like that. It's just, you know, whatever pops up on your phone, whatever notification gets our attention, that's not so great because it's turning us into people who are very much in the moment responding to every little fire drill that happens on our phones and our computers. Okay, to uh, Jim and Simsbury, yes, uh, typing your notes on your phone counts. I think typing me a note on the text line counts, Jim. There you go. <laughs> I think any place in space where you are choosing to say, I am marking this down, I'm marking this thought down, I'm marking this a place in a conversation down. I'm taking note of this in a significant way. I'm reminded, uh, John, of all the places, all the places in the Bible where God tells us to remember and not forget. The remembrance is just such this huge exercise of faith and the faithful people over time literally reconnects us to a point in time when God acted intentionally in human history, and we remember it. We go back to that place, and we become a part of it again. It's a huge part of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I mean, just on and on and on. You, you just described the, the usefulness of the Bible that helps us remember all those things. And I want to say just quickly, it's not about this scientific process and writing things down. It's really about what are you writing down? What are you remembering? Mm -hmm. Because if you're, if you're going through this process and you're doing mindfulness and you're thinking about things, well, you could actually be recording the wrong things. So living life, uh, living a purposeful and productive life really means saying, am I intentional about the right things? Am I working on the right things? And that's what leads to a more habitual, productive life. I love it. All right. That's John Brandon. We're going to continue our conversation with him over time about the seven minute productivity solution. You can check it out at sevenminutesolution.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, we've all heard the word woke. Last time Justin Gibney was on with us, I just straight up asked him, like, what does the word woke mean? Um, who's allowed to use it? Um, and what does it mean when we, you know, apply it in different conversations to different things? Well, Noelle Maring has written a book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. That conversation is up next. This is Max Lakato. 
Haman hated Mordecai the Jew and ordered the construction of a gallows for Mordecai's destruction. Meanwhile, the king, King Xerxes, could not sleep, and he requested a reading of the Book of Records, and it reminded him that Mordecai had once saved his life by reporting an assassination plot. Early the next morning, the king asked Haman what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman assumed the king was talking about him and made some suggestions. Go at once, the king commanded. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> Haman planned to lead Mordecai to the gallows. Instead, he led him through the streets. Who could have envisioned such a hairpin U-turn? God could. Thrilled to welcome today to Mornings with Carmen, Noelle Maring. She's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She writes regularly on topics of politics, culture, and religion. She has a really strong background in philosophy. We have talked before about the theology of home and the theology of home, too, and just thrilled to have her back today. You can find Noelle at noellemaring.com. Noelle, thank you for coming back and joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Great to be back with you. So I'm holding in my hands, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology, your new book. And I think we should start with, let's define woke, and then let's define progressive ideology. Oh, sure. Okay. So, well, the most neutral definition for woke, excuse me, I would say is it's uh, the state of being alert and attuned to the various layers of oppression in society as defined by the movement itself. So, it began initially with regard to racial justice, but it's expanded into all the hot button issues, including sexuality, gender, and uh, you know now transgenderism. It, but it, it, that's a neutral definition. What it really is, in the history and the, the presuppositions is uh, the latest version of, of Marxism um, combined with some Freudianism. Um, so that's how I would define the woke movement. The progressive ideology, uh, progressive kind of has some deep philosophical roots in Hegelianism, which is this idea that we are constantly moving towards this perfect um, eventual revolution, evolution in our state, our consciousness, where we arrive at some kind of utopian state. So this is why people, progressives often say you want to be on the right side of history, because history becomes almost like this God um, being um, that can determine right and wrong. Um, and ideology is basically, um, any ideology kind of takes one filter, one lens, and tries to see all of reality through one lens. So the progressive ideology of the woke tries to look at all human relationships, all institutions, and all dynamics through the lens of power. Who has power? Who does not have power? How can the people who don't have power get the power? And how are we being oppressed at any given moment? Because there's always this dynamic of oppression happening in every aspect of society. All right. And then let's also examine the word cult. I, I'm I'm super comfortable describing or using the term like religion in relationship to people who are advocating for a woke agenda, for lack of a better mm -hmm. way of describing it, um, because there is a God there and there are uh, and there is certainly is a sacrament there. We can get to that in a minute. Um, but when you use the word cult, I think there are probably people who stop there for a moment and say, what do you mean by that? Sure. That's a good question. So I think religion can become a cult when it starts 
becoming further and further um, a reduction of the human person. What do I mean by that? So where you have to, so there's certain characteristics of cults that I go through in the book. For one, it's really built on coercion and shaming. So you have to align yourself perfectly with the narrative that's being pushed upon you and any sort of weakness or failure to align uh, um, an ascent utterly can, you know, cancel you or shame you. Um, secondly, there's always, there tends to be in a cult acceptable behavior for cult leaders or people who are in one aspect of um, a deemed worthy of behaving in a certain way and that is utterly unacceptable for other people. So, for example, you'll see that, um, you know, rioting is excused. People went to great lengths to excuse rioting if it's for the sake of furthering an ideology, um, you know, in ways that they would never have got, um, accepted, you know, had it been uh, for the sake of, you know, something, some other cause or something that wasn't wasn't in line with the ideology. So there's a sort of blamelessness that that some people get away with um, because the, the, a cult can use this. There's no objective moral norm. So something can be right if it's for the sake of this power, you know, the uh, reverting the power structure um, that is objectively, you know, normally would it be considered totally inappropriate behavior. Um, so there's a couple of I go through about six or seven aspects in which it's similar to a cult. Um, but yeah, but it is it and it has that religious element where I really think that ultimately it's a fundamentally meant to replace Christianity. They, they're, they're opposed to one another. They cannot coexist. And so it takes on this religious dimension because of that kind of, it becomes a totalizing understanding of seeing the whole world that, that blots out any possibility of, of the true faith. We're talking with uh, Noelle Maring. The book is Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Um, Noelle, it's it's a meaty book. Like there's a lot here. We could spend a lot of time unpacking um, some very specific uh, parts and pieces of it. I would love for you to talk about um, critical thinking and how critical thinking has been overtaken by critical theory. Sure. So I think this is such an important point for people to realize. um, And it was really illuminating to me to dive into it. But so I think the easiest way to understand the difference is that critical thinking is aimed at the truth. So the goal of doing critical thinking is to find truth. Now, what that means is that the methodology becomes one in which you invite criticism of your own position because you want to you want to make sure that you've arrived at the truth. And if you haven't, you need to you want to correct yourself. Um, and so it, it involves dialogue. It involves debate. It involves um, trying to find the strongest argument in, a, in opposition to you so that you can see if, if, it, if that is able to be refuted. Critical theory, in contrast, is aimed not at the truth, but it has a goal of power. So the point of critical theory is to dismantle and criticize and critique all that is the status quo, the, stru- the structures that are in power. The goal is to um, to poke holes through them. And so if and the goal is to re- invert the power structure. And so if the power is your goal, not truth, what does that mean? That means you don't invite criticism, but rather you want to silence c- criticism. It serves no purpose for your goal of power. Um, and so that that is built into the movement. In fact, the the literature specifically speaks to the need to not hear out the other side, but rather to silence the other side. In um, an, a pivotal essay called "Repressive Tolerance," that the idea of tolerating dissent is actually something that serves no purpose for the ideology, and so it must be silenced. It must be canceled. Noel, why is it important for Christians listening right now to understand and appreciate the reality of of the woke agenda, um, because I think that there are there are many times that we're we're kind of 
just so overwhelmed by it that we just sort of shrink away. We just don't engage. And what you're really advocating for is that we would wake up and that we would pay attention and that we would become educated in order that we might sort of find our feet in the conversation as Christians. So talk with us as people of faith, how do we respond to woke culture and why does it matter that we do that? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, and I, and I think that many of us have shied away from the conversation for a long time because it feels like maybe this is just a detraction from my mission of evangelization or, you know, my mission to love God, love people, as, love God and love people. But I think it's important because the ideology is really escalating and it's harming the very people it claims to want to help. It fundamentally is not a movement for justice, and it's it's I think fundamentally is an anti it's unjust and unmerciful. And I think it's important for Christians to understand how it operates because it really operates on confusion. It takes very good and right Christian precepts like walk with the marginalized, walk with the suffering, walk with the oppressed, which are good and true. But then it inserts all this ideology into the conclusion. It says, if you want to fight injustice and if you want to walk with the suffering, you need to do it in this way. And the way the way in which they outline is really contrary to the Christian message. Um, it's 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 a fundamentally an irreverent message that obscures any possibility of having an, any understanding of what is good. And it, it fundamentally desires to corrupt innocence because innocence points to a moral norm. Um, for example. And so I think a lot of people have been confused and were kind of woken up a bit when we realized, for example, BLM had on their beliefs page that we need to queer the culture, we need to disrupt the nuclear family. And a lot of people were thinking, well, what does that have to do with fighting for racial justice? But if you understand what the woke movement is, you you see that they're connected in their mind. Um, And I think it's so important for Christians to realize that because this movement is trying to, I think, really usurp Christianity in the hearts of men. All right, we're going to take a very brief break. We're going to continue our conversation with Noel Maring. The book is Awake, Not Woke. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Noel Maring. Uh, she is a, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She's also an author. She's also a wife and a mom. Her book is Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Um, Noel, let's talk about words. Let's talk about the the way in which words are manipulated, redefined, um, and let's focus in on one word, and maybe that one word could be the word authentic. Oh, sure. Yeah. So words are really... Um, they're understood the movement to be avenues of power, of functions of power. And so you can manipulate the re- way we understand the world by manipulating our language. Um, and so that's really key to understand. Um, the word authentic in particular is fascinating to me and was interesting to explore in the book. But so it, it has become a real buzzword. And I think it seems innocuous enough. It just seems to mean, you know, how, how can we be sincere? How can we, you know, not be performative, you know, not pretend that we're something we're not? You know, these are these can be good instincts and, and true. Um, but the way that they understand it, um, it more deeply in the literature is that it's part of 
this value that goes in hand in hand with what can be called expressive individualism. What does that mean? That means that the goal of and the liberation of the human being is not just to be freed from groups that oppress us from, from the outside, but rather to also be freed from our own internal repression, particularly with regard to sexual morality. So part of your liberation is to identify what you desire that is particularly transgressive, especially in the sexual realm of sexuality, and how can you authentically express it own it and identify as it. And so this is why you'll see, for example, at pride parades, it tends to be a competition almost of the most outlandish presentation of yourself. Because the more we can present ourselves as bucking and transgressing social conventions, even with our you know, clothing, but particularly with the way we live in, in, a, in um, live out our sexual transgressions, the freer, more liberated, and more authentic we become. Authenticity in the, um, in the, in the traditional Judeo-Christian understanding of it is at, even in the etymology is connected to the word authority. They're, they're rooted in the same word, which means springs from an origin. In other words, the idea is that we become more authentic, more truly are who we are in connection, in relationship to uh, uh, God the Father and, 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 the, and the Trinity, of course. Um, and so that, that, these, this, that this idea that we can divorce ourselves from God and then truly become who we are is you know, asinine in some ways, because we are creatures in our, to our very core. And so we have to understand and become authentically who we are through the love of God. And it's that love that bring, gives us a freedom to authentically live out our lives and who we're meant to be. Let's talk about the Christian vision um, and how a Christian worldview and, and a, a Christian who is awake to these things um, can counter the lies of, of a woke I, you know, ideology, like how do I do that? And how do I do that in a way that is, is received where I don't just come off as the, you know, the judgy one? Yeah, no, it's such a big question. And I think that's important, you know, the last part of your question in particular, because it is very easy to become reactive. Um, and we don't want to fight an ideology by just becoming kind of, you know, reactionary ideologues on the, of another stripe, you know, we, to be contrary to an ideology, to be awake, I think, is to live with the fullness of reality, right? So we need to live with the fullness of truth, scientific truth, philosophical truth, and theological truth, and the, and to live the truth, and not only to know it propositionally, but to actually embody it. So we have to be people who are deeply aware of what is true, including the dignity of the person in front of us, the dignity of the person with whom we are debating, um, and, and know who our enemy is. Our enemy is not the people deceived by this ideology. It's the ideology itself, and it needs to be called out because it is fundamentally an uh, ideology based on lies, lies about the nature of the human person, lies about where her, her, his or her dignity. Um, and so that's hard. And it's real having real harms, real wounds are coming from this ideology for decades. They have been. And those wounds create fertile ground for to further the ideology uh, because they create a lot of despair, a lot of anger. Um, and that, that helps the cause of ideology. So we have to counter it with this with a, an embodied truth that is motivated by love, love of human beings, not anger, um, not a desire to own the libs or anything like that, you know, whatever. Um, but really, truly in, in a, a motivation of built and animated by the love of God and how we embody that is by owning our own sins, knowing, seeing ourselves clearly, seeing our need for a savior and seeing our need for mercy and then being able to people who can walk through the world looking mercifully upon the others. So one of the places in the book where I felt like there's a part of you that's that's revealed really deeply uh, in, on page 210 where you talk about where you make this statement. Hatred for an ideology can easily become hatred for the person espousing it. Um, you go on in that paragraph to talk about the profound familial relationship that we have with one another in Christ. 
and I felt like that was where the theology of home, like, mm. comes to life in this book, because mm. I, you're making a connection there that that those of us who live in a house with kids, like, we know this reality. There are times when I very much do not like what someone is doing, but that does not change how deeply and profoundly I love them. Mm. And yeah. um, and so this was really this was a really helpful point uh, uh, in the conversation for me. Yeah, no, I love that you teased that out. That's really beautiful. Um, yeah, I do think that we learn so much. The family is a school of love. You know, that's a, uh, I didn't invent that. That was John Paul II. But um, it really is a school of love. Why? Because it's it's this horrible, beautiful intimacy of family life where, you, you know, it's horrible because you get, you you confront your faults. You confront how you're impatient. You can, you see, you know, you, you're, you see yourself reflected in your family life when you lose your temper or when, um, you know, you're just sort of exposed because there's such an intimacy there. Um, and, but it's, it's beautiful because you get to contend with those faults. You know, you get to try to be more generous. You get to try to be more patient. You get to try to, you love better the people whom you, whom you dearly love. And somehow in that growing of that family life that, you know, those growing pains and those beautiful moments of, you know, forgiveness and, you know, repentance and all of, all of the things that happen and the intimacy of family life, you become people who can do that, you know, more easily and more, um, more naturally in the world around you. Uh, and but that but it really takes that that grounding of the home and the family, I think, to transform us in that way, um, and ultimately to point us towards the love of God. I mean, the first ask, um, the first way that a child is normally introduced to the who God is is through you know the role of his father in particular, um, and also through the role of the mother, because both can be expressions of both the nurturing and the authority and the and the unconditional love of of our Lord. So you know, the, there's it really is this rich fertile ground for developing the nature of the human person that we can then be, go out in the world and become a real apostle um, for Christ and and also on a natural human level just be better at loving people loving people um, themselves see I think that you know it's going to surprise people that a very straightforward and really deep look at wokeness and something that is a conversation that is pretty strong is also done in love and had in love and advocated in love. And I think that um, speaking the truth in love is something that Christians, you know, we're not only biblically mandated to do, we actually have to figure out how to do it in the culture that we live in, in real time. And uh, that's what you're helping us do. The book is Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Noel Maring is the author Noel, um, thank you so very much for joining us today. Where's the most effective for p- place for people to connect with you online? Well, I, I edited a website called theologyofhome.com with my co-author, Carrie Gress. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Noel M. And Theology of Home has a subscription. We'd send a daily email with curated content. We have a shop, and it's a good way to support our ministry if you want to follow us there. And we're also on Instagram as Theology of Home. Great. Theologyofhome.com. Noel, as always, thank you so very much. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Yes, 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 yes. You're right. Noelle Maring talks really fast. Just imagine how fast she thinks. All right. So you can go back later and listen again to Noelle Maring and our conversation about Awake Not Woke um, at MyFaithRadio.com. 
you can listen there on demand. You can also listen uh, on demand at on the Faith Radio app. Later on, you can go and download it as a podcast, right? And then you can listen to it. You can take some notes. It's that good. Um, so, yes, she talks really fast, but I'm I just thinking the whole time. How fast is her brain working that her mouth is moving that fast? Like, I, I mean, I talk fast. Some people think I talk fast. No, I don't, I don't talk anywhere as fast as so. All right. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, that was a little bit of jealousy on my part. I love her. If you're not uh, already following her, please consider it. Okay, uh, we are going to go forth from these conversations to be Christ's ambassadors in the world that God so loves. We're going to apply the mind of Christ to everything that we encounter today, to every conversation, to every situation. We're going to be people of peace. We're going to sow peace in the world as ministers of the gospel. That is who we are, and we will live as none other. One of the things Noel said is, you know, how powerful words are. Words change the world. One word in particular, and his name is Jesus. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.